Well, hello and welcome back to Flash Knockdown, episode three of the weekly podcast brought to you by Matchroom Boxing, where we break down the latest stories in the world of boxing and have some fun along the way with some great guests. Well, the team is split this week, which means we've had to go somewhat remote. It's a bit of a hop back to the lockdown days, but here we are. I'm your host, Jamie Ward, in sunny Essex and the nation's favourite producer, producer Scott. He's on the ground in sizzling Saudi Arabia as we count down to the monster rematch between Alexander Usyk and our man, Anthony Joshua, this Saturday from Jeddah. We're coming up on episode three. We have an exclusive with Conor Ben and also we'll hear from Chris Eubank Jr. What a press conference we had last week to kickstart an extremely fun build-up to that special, special fight on October the 8th. Callum Smith, he joins us to reflect on his previous Saudi experiences lifting the world title in the same arena he returns to this Saturday night. Master Ham Rapper, a member of Team Usyk for this week's fight. Ross Amber, he makes up our Everyone But The Fighter segment and former WBC World Cruiserweight King, Turned his own pundit. Tony Bellew is on the show looking to gate crash the dance partners leaderboard. And Campbell Hatton will talk through the best things to happen in boxing last week. All coming up on today's show. Don't go anywhere. Before we go fully focused on the small matter of rage on the Red Sea, we announced last week Chris Eubank Jr. and Conor Ben will reignite the family feud October 8th at the O2 in London, some 30 years on from when their fathers did battle in their rematch at Old Trafford. I caught up with both men at the launch press conference and it's safe to say this is a fight neither man can stomach the thought of losing. You have the words revenge, uh, redemption tattooed on you. Despite it being yourself and Chris doing battle on October 8th, how much more is on the line for Conor Ben? I mean, there's a lot on the line for both. Um, you know, the name's on the line, the legacy's on the line. Um, I mean, the family feud has been going on for for years. Well, you're talking, you know, yeah, for what, 30 years, 35 years. So um, they tried to make the fight happen. The fight ended as a draw. And, um, you know, this is really is a legacy fight. I don't think this has never been done before. We make history. Your dad's loving it, isn't he? Uh, just talk to me about the, the conversations you've had with your old man and what his reaction's been to this announcement. He has been driving me mad. <laughs> Every single day, get, when am I coming over, when am I coming over? So um, hopefully get him over um, next week, um, I believe. Uh, but I will be having him with me for the full camp. Talk to me about that, because I know it's so important for you. I know you miss your family so much running away. How important, especially for this fight, is it to have your dad there in your ear every step of the way? Uh, my dad's just a reminder to me of why I've running through my veins. Um, he's, I am my father's son, um, and I am him. So having him here for me reminds me of that. What did you make of Chris's comments yesterday, saying he's not actually heard from his dad whatsoever in the build-up? Do you believe him or think that's a bit of kidology, perhaps? I don't know, to be honest, mate, but that doesn't sound like a, a, a Team Ben problem. I mean, it's irrelevant to me. It makes no difference. Um, it would be great to have his dad uh, alongside him with his fight uh, due to the, um, the history of the fight and the, the fathers, but um, uh, again, that ain't, my, that ain't my issue. Everyone's been talking about the weight. 157 going to be the official weight. Tony, speaking to him earlier, he says, look, when you fly these weights in, they can't stand up to you in the gym anyway. How beneficial is the in-house sparring you've had with the likes of Felix, John Ryder, and sparring the bigger guys? How much is that going to play in your favour on the night? Well, sparring John, he's a, you know, he's a strong fighter. Sparring Felix is an explosive fighter. They're, you know, they're both, you've got two great fighters there in the gym, world class. And it's only when you spar other middleweights you realise how good them two are. You know, so... Certainly, you good? Yeah, so um, you... You realise how good with sparring we've got in the gym. Um, 
yeah, we, we got fly sparring, we fly middles, super middles in. And you know, I wear 18 ounce gloves and you know, it's to give it to him. So um, you don't know what I walk around at and you, no one knows that. My, my team and my trainers know me like the back of their hand. Um, you know, you think we'd get to this stage and make an uncalculated decision, you're wrong. Um, we, I'm probably heavier than Chris right now. Chris Algieri, yeah. Chris Van Heerden, now Chris Eubank. What's the crack with that? A lot of Chris's floating around, Connor. I think there's a common trend here. That says a lot, you know. That says a lot. Three Chris's. You know, Chris just seems, I mean, they both got banked out terribly. Um, so actually, who, who pointed that out? Just realised looking at your record today, actually. Oh, well done. Well done, you. Well done, James. Three out of three? Three out of three, mate. Yeah. Three out of three, most definitely. I just can't lose to a Chris, can I? You've said 60% of Chris Eubank Jr. is enough to beat Conor Ben. You've said you're not going to push yourself 100%. Do you mean that? And, and why do you believe, why do you have that self-belief that there's nothing Conor Ben can do to win this fight? I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm too... I'm too experienced. I'm too. I'm too strong. I'm too. Um, I'm too cunning. I'm just. I'm not seeing anything in this game that can that can upset me, and that justifies me killing myself in the gym. I've already got to kill myself on the scales. I'm not going to do both. We know the incredible history of your father's names, but this is your chapter to write now. What does it mean to you and to the Eubank family to be on this position, fighting the Bens once again? It's huge. You know, this is something that. Uh, you can't make it up, you know, two, two legends fighting, um, biggest fight in Britain, and then their son's fighting 30, 30 years later. Um, it's never happened before, and it will never happen again, and that's what excites me about this. You've said about keeping the Eubank name on top, it is 1-0 in terms of victories. Why is that important to you? Well, it's actually 2-0, because I think I just slaughtered him in this press conference. Not slaughtered him, but, you know, yeah, if you're going to say who won the, the battle of the, the war of the words, it's, it's a no contest, you know. I think I rattled him, I got under his skin, he got upset. You know, then that's, uh, that, this is where the fight starts, really, you know. Um, but yeah, this is, this is huge and it's an it's amazing opportunity we have now to, to bring generations um, together. You know, it's very, it's very rare that you have multiple generations interested in a bout, interested in the fight. You've got all the people that grew up watching my old man, you've got all the new school fight, uh, you know, the fans, all coming together to watch this, so it's going to be huge. Nigel's seemingly very excited. We haven't seen an awful lot of reaction from your dad. Can you tell us about any conversations you've had? Because I heard actually yesterday, you said um, on Five Live, that you've not actually heard from him yet. Is that true? Yes, I, I, I'm, I'm yet to hear on how he wants to move forward with this. Um, but you know, my old man's my old man. He'll, when he's ready, he'll, um, he'll let me know how he wants to move forward with this fight, whether he wants to be involved, whether he wants to take a backward seat. Uh, as you saw today, our fathers mm -hmm. weren't here, which is a shame, but you know, there's still plenty of time. Now you've been out in Vegas uh, for camp. The decisions have come over here and base yourself in Brighton. Talk to us through that decision and why it's important for you to be close to home. Um, it's not important for me to be close to home, but this is a huge fight in England, so the camp should be in England. I don't want to be travelling back and forth. Um, I have a great gym in Brighton. Um, I have a great setup there. I have great sparring partners, a great team. And uh, yeah, we're going we're gonna to prepare diligently 
in England, in my hometown. I kind of said when the opening bell rings, he's going to do what he's done for his previous fights and he's going to steam right into you. Tell us about that and why do you think that plays into your hands, Chris? I don't believe him. I think that's all, uh, that's all hype, that's all talk. I don't, see, I don't see him doing that. I think he's going he's gonna to go in there and try and survive. He's going to be very careful early on because he's, he's, he doesn't know. He doesn't know what I am, what it is to fight at this level, so he has to feel it out. Um, if he does go full steam ahead from round one, I'm going to be very impressed. But you believe if you are to not win this fight, it's something you couldn't come back from. Talk to us about that. No, I cannot come back from a loss. I'm finished. If if uh, if I let Conor Ben beat Conor Ben beat me in this fight, uh, so yeah, that's not going to happen. Well, this is a fight we cannot wait for. Stay tuned for the face-off with Adi Oladipo dropping very soon. Connor and Chris sat just a few feet away for a very intense 15-minute chat. That is not to be missed. We'll also be beginning filming for our Access All Areas Make the Days Count episode, and that will be dropping in the coming weeks as well. Plenty of content in the build-up to Chris Eubank Jr. versus Connor Ben to look forward to. Well, great to be back here on Flash Knockdown, episode three. Once again, with producer Scott, although producer Scott is a good few hours around the world in sunny Saudi Arabia. Scott, how's uh, how's everyone settling in in Saudi? What's a, a huge, huge week for Matchroom and a huge night for Anthony Joshua on Saturday? Yeah, everyone's all right, mate, to be fair. We had a bit of a nightmare getting here, I'm not going to lie. I think from leaving my flat to arriving in the hotel in Jeddah was 27 hours um, which I could have gone to Melbourne in that time. It was a very long time. We missed our connecting flight uh, and then we had to wait 10 hours for the next one. So it was an absolute mission, mate. Not going to lie. A couple of hours sleep, good coffee in the morning. And yeah, we hit the ground running um, in one of the fighter hotels now called the Casablanca. Seeing some of the, the undercard fighters walking around. So everyone seems in good spirits, mate. Yeah, well, you are in the fighter hotel, of course, over in Jeddah. I'm actually reporting live from Matchroom HQ, not in our 35 degrees recording studio today. I'm actually in the office at my desk in the boxing department. Very empty, eerie, I'm... the only one in here. Um... Well, props for going in, mate. That is um, that's a big plus point. I might have to ring the work phone just to make sure you are in the office <laughs> and, and not uh, and not skiving. But no, props for going in yeah. and... and... Holding the fort, mate. Obviously, got a lot going on behind the scenes with Ben Eubank, which uh, I'm sure you'll be planning for in the coming days, weeks, and months. Absolutely, I've actually got a call with with Team Eubank uh, within the next hour to plan when we're going to be heading down to Brighton to begin some filming with him. I was I was saying to the guys, just so hope that uh, Senior has come out of hiding, as Junior said at the press conference. I'm not sure anyone actually believed that, but I'm really hoping we're going to get Senior on uh, on the documentary in some some fashion. Have you met? Uh, senior Chris, actually, Scott. Yeah, I was thinking if you called me Chris then. Um, yeah, yeah, <laughs> big fan of, of the fighter. I haven't really worked with him, to be fair. I think Newbank uh, Junior was signed to Matchroom before I actually joined. So apart from maybe one or two fights in the bubble, sort of caught up with him during the fight previously in Saudi because uh, Eubank Junior boxed JJ McDonough on the Groves and Smith undercards. Yeah, I've only met him a handful of times, to be fair. We better just touch on the big one uh, this Saturday night. AJ Usyk, the rematch. We were obviously both there, Scott. Spurs, a special night for you as a, an avid Spurs supporter, but this fight for, for Anthony Joshua, how important is it that he brings the belts back to the UK? And, you know, I was listening to, it was interesting, Johnny Nelson saying he thinks that if AJ loses the fight, he'll walk away from the sport, which I don't think Eddie necessarily agreed with looking at the recent interviews from Media Day. But what's your, your thoughts on this fight and, and how important it is for Anthony Joshua? 
the unified world heavyweight championship doesn't get much bigger than this in, in boxing all right don't rub it in mate <laughs> sorry mate <laughs> but just listening to eddie as well he's talking about he believes aj knocks Usyk out in six rounds linking up with robert garcia obviously we're expecting aj to be fitter but we're expecting him to be more aggressive is that is that realistic do you believe if aj can put it on Usyk and, and utilize his size perhaps like he maybe should have done in the first fight it can be not only the first man to beat him, but but also stop him. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. And obviously, without going into the detail and, and maybe what he should have done in the first fight, which I guess is it's kind of well documented, and we're not saying we're experts in that field by by any stretch of the imagination. But I, I thought there was one area in particular. It was the body punching from Joshua that did seem to make inroads. You no, know, to his credit, I think Alexander said in the post fight interview, you know, he maybe did feel one or two of those. So. I think that's a, an interesting avenue. Um, I believe I'm right by saying Alexander has been dropped as an amateur um, to the body. So let's see if if maybe Robert Garcia can can highlight that as a you know route to success and Anthony picks up on or maybe a little bit of success he had in the first fight to that area. But a fascinating um, fight. Definitely. And we've got Mr. Bellew coming on a little bit later on who knows all too well what it's like to share the ring with Usyk. So it'll be interesting to hear Tony's opinion. Just another story in boxing I've been reading this week it was actually my dad who sent me this and he made me promise to read him out on the podcast so legend Ken Buchanan has uh, unveiled a statue a public ceremony on Leaf Walk in Edinburgh commemorating his career it's a lovely bronze statue so uh, a great legend of Scottish boxing a great legend of the sport as well and I know I'm probably a little bit biased being being half Scottish do you want to tell everyone producer Scott what my nickname is in the office actually? Yeah I was just going to jump in there and say um, alright mate keep your, keep your kilt on you're getting a bit carried <laughs> away there um yeah, you, I mean, you've got many nicknames, first and foremost. Probably the only one we can say on air is The Jock, which, <laughs> um, which seems to have stuck. So, um, yeah, I know you was a bit disappointed, unfortunately. We never got the cash route Lee McGregor rematch over the line for a big night in uh, in Scotland. But, you know, fingers crossed we can go back at some point. Yeah, very disappointed. Um, more so, obviously, for Cash, you know, more than anyone. I know Cash is manager Ian Wilson very well. Cash is such a... A lovely guy, do you know what I mean? So humble and was so talented. I really believe he would have gone all the way. So hopefully one day, Scott, we should actually get cash on and, and have a little catch up with him because I know he's settling in well to his new role at the St. Andrews Boxing Club uh, as an advisor. And I think he's working on his on his coaching badges as well. So it would be great uh, great to get cash on, wouldn't it, soon? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, we, we will definitely do that. I think it's very rare for, for me to, to make a statement and, and put so much faith in, in someone, but I was very, very hot on cash and I did think he would go on all the way, um, which, yeah, it's unfortunate how things played out, but, you know, obviously health is more important than anything. So it's great to see him settling in and hitting the ground running in his new role, like you say, and yeah, we'll have to reach out and get him on very soon. Um, but like, like you said, great to see the statue of uh, of Ken. I'm sure Josh Taylor will be uh, looking to get a statue of his own if he has <laughs> if he hasn't already lined up in the, in the coming months and years. Absolutely. I'm sure that will very much be the case. Well, talking of that word success, one man who's had success in the desert before, Liverpool's Callum Smith. He returns to Saudi looking to secure a shot at the WBC World Light Heavyweight Crown. Mundo joins us on the ground in Jeddah next to look back at the crowning moment against George Groves just shy of four years ago and preview his final eliminator with Mathieu Baudelik this Saturday from Saudi. Well, we're delighted to be joined by Callum Smith on our ringside reflection segment of the show today. Mundo, out in the kingdom of Saudi Arabia once again. You've been there, you've done it before. How are you settling in this time round, sir? Yeah, obviously it's a little bit easier this time. I've, I've been here before and I, I know the place. I understand what I'm here to do and it's it's good the hotel's nice you've settled in and I'm looking forward to the weekend has Scott got his jacket on Callum <laughs> no he hasn't he's shorts and t-shirt to be fair which is a surprise mate I cannot be wearing a coat over here trust me it is hot 
I mean, it's only morning time, but it's really hot, mate. So no chance. There is no coat packed, actually. Probably for the first time ever. But shorts. I do have legs. I do have legs. I've never seen your legs. Well, you know, maybe you'll see them on the behind the scenes edits, mate. <laughs> <laughs> Callum, let's just talk about that experience in Saudi then. It's what, three and a half years on from your world title victory in Jeddah. The same venue you're, of course, returning to this Saturday night. It's flown by. Does it feel like it's only yesterday for you, and, and or does it feel like that time has been and gone quite long? Yeah, no, it's gone. When I think back to it, it feels like it was only last year. I think obviously the pandemic doesn't help. I think we lost a couple of years or whatever without knowing it. But yeah, I've always got fond memories of it. It was, you know, the best night in my career so far, and to do it in Jeddah, it was just made it that little bit different and probably that little bit more memorable, to be honest with you. But yeah, good memories from here, and hopefully I can add some more this weekend. Um, let's just talk about the the final itself, then, Callum. How do you feel it was shaping out at the time of the stoppage because it was actually pretty split on the card yeah I thought it was pretty how I expected obviously both big punches we were both kind of scared to make mistakes but I was still trying to take rounds as we were going I felt like I was I've watched it back after six rounds I felt like I was 4-2 up I felt like it was going the way I planned and I was landing I thought all of any decent shot lander was, was from myself but I knew he was kind of when I was landing he, he, he was a little bit uncomfortable and I felt like I felt like I was only just getting going I remember I got I think I'm halfway in the fight and I haven't really done a lot so I, I felt confident I was I was gonna land I didn't think it'd be a body shot I thought it'd be a headshot that would be the, the finisher but I was pleased with how the fight was going I think I switched off in a, a couple of rounds which kind of let him get back into I think I ate him in the third and then maybe lost the fourth or fifth I can't remember so I remember being a little bit annoyed but I thought I got back going and so thankfully got the finish but the fight was kind of how I expected it I knew it would be a bit more of a chess match we were never both going to come out and tee off on each other from round one but no I, I got the job done Just talking to me about those finishing moments I spoke to so many fighters before and they say that time tends to stand still when they have got a great inclination they're about to become a world champion you fell to your knees before the referee had really finished counting did you know though when you had Grows backed into the corner. You had him hurt that it was done at that stage. Yeah, I knew the the left hook to the head hit him. I just unloaded because I hit him in round three and went to finish him and kind of let him off the hook. And I remember just saying to myself, if he gets up, you've got to get rid of him. You can't let him see the round out because I think when you've got a fight, you can punch as long as they're in the fight. They're always dangerous, whether it's round one or round twelve. So I just remember saying, you've got to get rid of him. And then I, I didn't know the body shot to land. I thought he just took a knee to clear his thoughts and he was going to get back up. And when I seen him staying down and he shook his head. I, oh okay he's not getting up and a lot of the times when you drop people you don't think they're going to get up you kind of you're already celebrating in your head whereas I fully expected him to get back up and I say I was already thinking about what I was going to do once he was up so I think it was a bit more of a surprise when he didn't get up that it was over there and then and no bit of relief at the same time and it's a good feeling even like taking back to it now I no I don't watch it a lot but it's good to go back there down memory lane it was such a good night for me and say the highlight of my career so far Callum says that Jamie but I can see the background on his phone is actually a picture of him on the knees in the ring um, no I'm joking I'm joking <laughs> I was going to say he's definitely being modest here <laughs> Callum just talk to me about the, the very final moments there because there were great scenes all the brothers even your dad invading the ring we know the Smith family stick together all over the world, but that sort of feeling, how do you describe that, them sort of moments? Yeah, it was hard to describe, to be honest with you. It was more as weird as this sounds. It felt like a weight off my shoulders because from very, very early on in my career, I was touted as a, no, he'll be a, he'll be a world champion, he's a future world champion, and kind of added pressure and I believe took away from any of the other achievements. So I won the English title, British title, and no one really cared if that makes sense. And even to myself, I was never satisfied because I was assert to win a world title and I won a European title and a lot of fighters that were dying out on that and enjoy it. And I kind of just said, okay, well, let's get the world title next. And I never actually sat back and enjoyed any of the achievements. And I don't feel anyone else did. I don't feel anyone else was 
impressed when I brought my British title to see them all in the European title. You were always just waiting for, for the world one and in the build for the Glows fight. I weren't on the best run of form, to be honest with you. And I remember thinking, if I don't win this, then will I ever get another chance? And I, I believe I won a very few fighters who, if I didn't win a world title, had to be classed as, a, as an underachiever, whereas a lot of people who win a world title, it's maybe they've overachieved getting it. And I just felt I kind of had that pressure on me. So it was feeling a relief and like a weight off my shoulders that I finally done. I proved everyone else right. Whatever else I do now in boxing is it's just adding to that but I can retire tomorrow and I'm a world champion. I'm not a, a failure, I haven't not fulfilled my potential, I've done what I set out to do. So it was good, good achievement, good feeling and I say a good night all around. We asked uh, Katie Taylor last week where she can, keeps her Olympic gold medal, which is just in a, a draw at home in, in Ireland. Darren yeah. Barker said he keeps his world title, the IBF belt, around his mum and dad's on the wall. The World Boxing Super Series trophy is absolutely huge. Yeah. Where does that sit in the Cam Smith household? To be honest with you, yeah. And that's in the box with me belts there in their boxes and they're all in the garage at the minute and I keep saying I'm going to get somewhere to put them on display in the house but my missus isn't too happy. If you walk to my house you wouldn't think a box, there's not any <laughs> boxing in there and yeah the trophy's in the garage, it's it's a little bit too big to put on the fireplace I think but I'll find somewhere for them and get some sort of man cave or something in the future. Callum, post-fight after your night in Jeddah must have been very different. I know a few of you a lot enjoy beer, we had some great moments in New York, didn't we, after Beefy's win against Vargas, when everyone, I think the whole bar was singing his walkout tune as he arrived and as he left as well. But obviously, in Saudi Arabia, differing circumstances. What did you actually do to celebrate that night with all the boys? Um, I think I boxed quite late for, for the Saudi time. By the time I got out the ring, I think it was close to midnight and we'd done the after-fight press conference. And then I think by the time we got to the... The hotel it was one two in the morning and well, there's no alcohol involved certainly and i think we got a few pizzas and then i think we get picked up at the airport at like five so we kind of just stayed up in the hotel and then even when i got on my flight home i couldn't really sleep i think i still had a trend and i was reading all my messages on my phone and i think i've done like probably two days just awake and it was a bit of surreal but obviously outside my kids being born it's probably the best 24 hours of my life it was just i felt like i was this mad buzz for for two days and it took a while to come down but yeah celebrations weren't what i always envisioned to be like winning a world title but no, again i think it makes it that little bit different being in saudi and celebrations are a little bit muted but no i celebrated once i got home one man who loves a, a beer after a show is producer Scott. So Scott, what were you doing to, to celebrate after the win that night? <laughs> yeah, obviously we couldn't uh, get stuck in. Uh, from memory, there was bottles of grapefruit juice flying yeah, around. Yeah, they, like, they were like champagne. Yeah. So everyone got a bit of a buzz and thinking, oh yeah, you can get some. And then, yeah, and then the, the changing room, they had non-alcoholic Budweiser as well. I'm telling you, the placebo effect is legit. I definitely, I was definitely, uh, I felt I had a few after that. And they made you a chocolate cake as yeah, well from memory. Cakes and I, the, the hotel were brilliant. You met me last time, to be fair, they looked after me. We'd get them a few tickets for the fight and stuff. And so when we got back, they put like, like food and stuff on for us. But yeah, it was different, but it was, it was a good experience looking back. Well, let's talk about this Saturday then, Callum. Should you repeat defeat and, and emerge victorious once again, you'll be locked in as mandatory for Arta Baterviev. It's a, a tough job, one probably not a lot of fighters do fancy, but it's one you really fancy, and it's a job you're, you're desperate to land to have the chance at, isn't it? Yeah, it is, to be honest with you. And look, I'm not sitting here slating the guy. His achievements speak for themselves. He's you know, three three-time world champion. He's undefeated. He's never even been to points, but I'm... I'm confident in my own ability. I've watched him over the years and he's not invincible. He has been hurt. And you know, when you've seen two other fighters put him over, I've got to believe I can do it. And I think Tarman's right. He's not going to go on forever. He's, no, I think he is coming to probably just leave in his best years as I believe I'm in my best years. But well, I've got a tough fight the weekend to earn my shot. And I think we'll know a little bit more about myself after this weekend. And I think it'll be good preparation to, to then roll into, into the world title fight. But 
you know, I've always backed myself against anyone and I believe the best version of me turns up, I can beat anyone, whether that's Betty Bev or anyone else in the division. But no, it is a tough fight on paper, I understand that, but I always feel the tough fights are what bring out the better performances in myself. Well, let's just talk about your dance partner briefly then, Matthew Baudelik in the opposite corner. What can you tell us about him? I believe the pair of you have actually sparred, is that correct? I believe so, yeah. He was obviously on the French team for a long time ago as an amateur when I was on the GB team. And I think we've done a bit of sparring over in France. I, I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure we did. And I just know his face, I've seen him obviously at the, at the Rio Olympics and then He's coming off a good win last time out, stopping McCalkin as if for the European title. So he's in a good run of form. So I've got to expect a, a very good version of him. But it's just a, a, a typical stand-up southpaw, good boxing skills, good boxing brain, obviously with the amateur pedigree. And he's you know going to provide problems while I need to overcome. But I've had a good camp. I believe I'm in, in a good position mentally and physically, and concentrating on myself to be the best version of me beating. And I, that's just what I've got to do this weekend. Listen, do as I'm told, and you know, perform. And I believe I'll come out victorious and you know, Mancy challenger for me for my second world title. Callum, we'll all be watching back here in the UK, of course. One step closer, I'm sure you'll take to becoming a two-weight world champion. Indeed, go well this Saturday, mate. Uh, we're all very much behind you, and thanks for coming on. We move on now to our Everyone But The Fighter segment, the part of the show where we pay focus to everyone but the fighter. Let me hand you back over now to producer Scott, who's going to tell us exactly who we're speaking with this week. Well, we've had two great segments so far on the podcast. We obviously had Stitched Around in episode one talking about cuts. And last week we had Roberto Diaz on The Art of Matchmaking. Today we're going to be joined by Russ Amber, hand rapper extraordinaire, who's obviously in Alexander Usyk's corner, obviously works with Vasily Lomachenko, Arta Beterbiev, and so on. So just waiting for for us to come down to reception here in the Fighter Hotel. And when he does, we'll get underway. Well, Russ Amber, what a treat to have you on the podcast today. Thanks so much for coming on. As most in the boxing game, you excel in various areas, but today we're going to focus just on the art of hand wrapping, something you're particularly good at. Before we do, though, let's just start with Alexander Rusik. How did the pair of you meet, first of all? Because I believe the pair of you do go quite far back now. Well, personally, how we met was um, because I had been working with, uh, with Lomachenko. Um, Egis Klimas, his manager, uh, asked me if I would be so kind as to do cuts and hand wrapping for Usyk when he fought in California. Uh, this goes back, geez, I have to look at the record, but this goes back a few years now. It was um, WBO cruiserweight. Uh, title fight in California the same night that that Bernard Hopkins fought Joe Smith and and Joe Smith put Hopkins through the ropes uh, it was on that night um, so that's how we started and uh, we've been friends ever since we worked together in, in in camps together I've been to Ukraine for training camp I trained him when he was in LA for the Michael Hunter fight so our relationship goes back to, to relatively early in his career so uh, I'm really happy about that you said you've been friends ever since there. How much of a special guy is he, Russ? Not just in terms of as a fighter, but certainly as a character and as a person behind the scenes as well. Jamie, the best I can do is tell you, I mentioned this to somebody one day and it, and it has stuck to me in my mind since, and I sincerely mean this, like uh, if you have a daughter, you wish she would bring home somebody like Alexander Usyk. <laughs> That's that's how I kind of feel about the guy, and I and I sincerely mean that. You know, like uh, the everything. I think I think like we all. Of course, I'm sure we all have flaws. You know, we're we're all human. But for everything that is good about humanity, I think he represents it, and uh, um, he's a, he's a pure, 
religious, believing, honest man. And um, yeah, they don't come much nicer than that. And I've seen he's been carrying around an Eeyore cuddly toy as well, which is what his daughter asked to keep with him. That says a lot about the man and, and what type of father he is as well, doesn't it? Yeah, it, it does. And if you remember correctly, uh, during the last fight, when that young kid um, from uh, Ireland sent him that, what do you call that, hockey stick? Yes, uh, stick, yes, the, I remember him carrying yeah. that around. Yeah. Uh, you know, that was sent as a gift to him and... Uh, you know, I, 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 I thought that was really nice, like how he's touched by those kind of things. So uh, that's what I said. There's just some things about him that make him pure and genuine and, uh, uh, you know, nice. <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, he's just genuinely nice. He's, uh, he's a very sincere man, isn't he? I believe he is. You know, yeah. I think he takes the time. And uh, I noticed when I was in the Ukraine as well, you know, just seeing the way he interacts with people, not only those who don't recognize him, uh, not only those who do recognize him, but especially those who don't recognize him, which is which is great the way how how the class in which he conducts himself. Uh, just a good guy, man. A hell of a fighter. Great. Well, just talk to me about that quickly, because we, we know he's a, a fantastic character, but one hell of a fighter. In terms of, of all the fighters that you've been in and around, how, how special is the skill set of Alexander Rusik? Well, it's right up there of being there with, you know, with with Roy Jones and, uh, and Lomachenko, you know? And I, and I think sometimes when they make the comparison between Loma and Usyk, I think you gotta give almost the extra edge to Usyk from a point of view that he's gotta carry around so much weight and do the same things, you know? Like he, he does it, he does it at such a, uh, a fast pace for such a big guy. Uh, it's been a while since we've seen a fighter that big uh, be able to compete and the, the damn guy thinks he's a middleweight, you know, and uh, and fights at that kind of a pace, which is crazy. It's interesting. Like, I, m I remember I spoke to Alexander immediately after he won the fight in our post-fight interview for Matram, and I think it went under the radar a little bit how marked up his face was. Can you talk to us about that from, from your perspective? Yeah, it was in, I was in the eighth or ninth round, I believe, he, he got cut. And I don't think anybody, anybody saw it or noticed it. And it was one of those cuts that was like just just by the nose and on the inside of the eye, but it went it went north and south. You know, it didn't go across. It went up and down. And uh, you know, thank God I got to it right away, and uh, and it didn't bleed and it didn't become a factor, and no one no one even noticed it happened until until after the fight. And I remember this has to be in in my 43 years one of the best compliments I ever had. He said when we were in the doctor's room waiting to get stitched. He, he says, Russ, I feel blood. I feel blood. And I come back corner and you working and I see you working. I go out next round and I'm weight blood. I'm weight blood. And then I don't feel blood. I say, okay, Russ fix. <laughs> and, that was, <laughs> and that was his way of kind of saying, thank you, good job. <laughs> I didn't feel a thing and it was good. So uh, I was happy about that. And, uh, Sometimes you get them where you can just stop them in time and they don't become a factor and that was one of them and that couldn't have happened at a better time. But that was a, it was a bad cut. He took three stitches inside, seven stitches outside. So it was quite a, a deep cut that nobody, I don't think anybody realized was, was even there on the night. I don't think in the broadcast anybody mentioned it or nothing. It was, a, it was almost non-existent. And hand wrapping itself. Can you remember the, the first fight you wrapped uh, leading into a fight and how your nerves were holding up that day? Yeah, wow, I never thought about that. The first time I wrapped the fighter's hands. Um, 
would have probably had to have been my amateurs at the time. And I remember developing, um, the ironic thing is, my method of wrapping a hand hasn't really changed over the years. Like, and back home, uh, you know, my reputation was all really good about, oh, Russ is good with wrapping hands, Russ is good with wrapping hands. And I've done the same thing. So, you know, now people are saying, oh, Russ is, Russ is good at wrapping hands. I've been doing it the same way and I was just as good at it 25 years ago, but it's only now that people are noticing. So <laughs> it just got better over time. I guess my reputation just got better over time, but my work has been the same uh, all along. There hasn't been many adjustments I've made to my style of, of hand wrapping. What about in terms of the fighter's preference though, Russ? I know some fighters have superstition. They might like a certain hand to be wrapped before the other one or in, in a different way. Do you have to sort of adapt somewhat depending on what the fighters prefer? Well, I'll always ask a fighter which hand he wants wrapped first. That's fine. You know, that's a, a superstitious thing. And then some fighters will say, okay, I've got this little injury or this kind of part nags me here. Pay attention to this area. And I will, you know, and I'll, I'll tell them, okay, this is what I'm going to do. But I can't think of, of many strange hands that I've had to wrap or, uh, and usually everybody that I do wrap, I wrap the same way because I, I know one time, um, Agus asked me to wrap Sergei Kovalev and as in the middle of doing it, Sergei's pulling on the gauze and saying, no, no, pull it here and no, do this, do that. And like, I couldn't do my hand wrapping when I was trying to do it his way. It was a disaster. He was one of the guys that I didn't end up ever wrapping hands for because it was never the way he liked it. And when he was trying to fix it, it made it worse. And that was a disaster. But um, I, 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 everybody that I wrap now and all the people that I had and who I get rehired for continuously, I genuinely wrap the same, pretty much the same way, except to accommodate any mi minor issues they may have on their hands. We saw a, uh, a clip recently that went quite viral actually out in Spain, Russ. Uh, it was Liam Smith went into Kerman Leiraga's dressing room to watch his hands being yeah. wrapped against James Metcalf. I believe you quoted yeah. the video on social media and called it stacking. For someone who might not be up on that term, like myself, can you just explain to us what happened in the video and why Beefy was right to get them to rewrap Kerman's hands at that time? Well, stacking is a, is a method where uh, where uh, you take you you start to wrap the hand in gauze, then you stop and you put a layer of tape all the way around it. Then you go back to putting another layer of gauze and then you put tape around that. And then you put another layer of gauze and you put tape around that. So basically you're build, what you're attempting to do is build this more rigid, heavier, cast-like protection around the hand. Now, does it work? Does it not work? I don't know. But to me, someone who has an intent of doing that is looking to cheat. And I've always felt that stacking was an attempt at cheating. You know, you're, you're trying to do something that is untoward. And I hate that shit. I hate, I hate when people try to cheat at hand wrapping or glove tampering. Uh, it, I, I think to me that, that those two are even lower forms of, of cheating than, 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 than doping. <laughs> you know, this is something you're doing to someone's hands that are gonna be hitting the other person, or if at least just as bad. And I hate it. I hate commissions that allow that to happen. Uh, I, think it's, I think it opens you up for so much ambiguity when, when doing it and saying what you can and cannot do. I mean, just keep it simple the way it was supposed to be done. You put gauze on, you put tape, and then the inspector marks it with his magic marker. And that should be the end of that. 
And just away from boxing, Russ, I guess from the outside looking in, maybe at your social media, two things stand out. The magic side, which we obviously saw at a public workout with uh, Wooden Conlon recently. Yeah. And also Paul as well. Yeah. I believe he was, at a, yeah. Yeah, he was at a, a hall last night. Is that I correct? I was, yeah. Yeah. That's just, you know, the, the, the magic stuff was, the magic stuff is really uh, quite ironic because I was working in a, in a sporting goods store when I was 15 years old and I was just getting into boxing. And a friend of mine, uh, at the same time, same age, he was working there. I was in the ski department. He was in tennis department and um, he was doing magic and he would show us tricks. You know, I'd beg him to show me a trick, you know, and finally he showed me a magic trick on the condition that I was to practice it and then redo it for me. And if I did, he showed me, he'd show me another one. Well, we're both kids, 15 years old in a town about about 5,000 people, you know, a real small uh, ski town up in, in north of Montreal, like 50 miles north of Montreal. And we had a dream of wanting to be, like I wanted to be in boxing and he wanted to be in magic. And sure enough, you know, we both fulfilled our dreams and he, he's still an active magician today. At one point, he was like the number fourth ranked magician in the world. I got to be do this gig in boxing in which, you know, I've reached a high, have had the opportunity to work with high level fighters and been on this game. And that's just from being a dream of two kids when you're 15 years old, wanting, falling in love with something and wanting to do that. And we succeeded in, in pursuing our dreams and setting the, our lives out for us. So magic is kind of ironic for me. And, and to this day, I still practice and have fun and, you know, do tricks for people and, uh, I love doing that, but it always makes me remember that that takes me back to when I was 15 years old and I said, I want to do that. And my friend and I both succeeded in our respective fields and to go on and do this in a, as a career. And that's, that's, that's not often that that happens. Very true. And on the pool circuit, what about in boxing? Who's good with a cue? Who would you say is uh, who's up there? Who can give you a game? If I gave you a rankings of all the guys... Pound that, for pound. Yeah, a pound <laughs> for pound ranking. I think now Manny Pacquiao is supposedly the best player the best player, uh, but I've never played him, so I don't know. But he's supposedly the best nine and ten ball player. He's, he plays like with all those Filipino guys, Bustamante and Efren Reyes. He's, Reyes, he's a yeah. good player. But if I had to give you a list of boxing guys that I've played, I think the number one on the list would be Beefy. Beefy's the best the best player I've played, whether it's Poole or Snooker, he's the best player I've played. Uh, Russ, I think just for the last two questions we're going to ask each of our guests, I think... There was a moment in the Mick Conlon fight, I was just trying to remember from watching it, where I think you got a little bit animated on the apron. Is that correct? Am I, am I remembering that right? If so, when, when, you're, <laughs> when you're watching a fight unfold, how does a fight play out through Russ Amber's eyes? What is it you're looking for? Um, I guess that varies. Does it roll to roll? What's your... Yeah, I mean, like, it. Uh, you see, one of the advantages of me, I think it's an advantage, I like to think it's an advantage of me being in the corner as a cut man is I feel I'm there with a with another set of eyes as a trainer because I was a trainer before I was a cut man because back in the day when you became a trainer, learning to do cuts was part of the was part of the role of being a trainer. You learned to wrap hands, you learned to do cuts, you trained fighters, you even managed them to a certain degree. So this was all encompassing when I first started back in the game in, in 1979. Now it seems to have niched out in that managers are managers, trainers are trainers, guys who wrap hands are guys who wrap hands and cut men are, are guys that do cuts. It wasn't like that back in the day. So when I sit down in the corner, even though I'm a cut man, I, my mind, my body, my eyes, my heart 
is watching the ebb and flow of the fight. I'm sitting there looking like a trainer. And when I'm working with a good team, I express that interest and I convey my, my sounds. I, let, I make sure that we're yelling the same thing, but I'll be very adamant about yelling the, the, the instructions and the things that I see and that are, of course, in, in accordance with what the team is, is, is focused on yelling and what the plan is. So uh, I'll just be more vocal about it and, and I'll act like, a, like I'm a coach in there because that's what I feel. I feel like I'm that second coach because I bring a second set of eyes and 43 years of experience into the game that I, that I could see things. And, you know, that's, uh, that's something that's, you know, I hope has helped a lot of fighters along the way that there has been that second set of eyes there. Uh, to support the coach, and I know that, that ha that's happened numerous times with, with when I was working with Jean Pascal, with Mark Ramsey, you know, we were able to see things and uh, make the adjustments, and it was like having two coaches in the corner, which was great. And finally, if we just finish uh, on hand wrapping as per the segment, what attributes do you believe you need to make an expert hand wrapper? If there's any budding hand wrappers out there in the world listening to this, what would you say to inspire them of what skills they need? You know, usually I would, I would be, I mean, I've never done a study on this, but I'd be safe to say that anybody who does a good job wrapping hands is probably very good meticulously with other things, you know, whether it's repairing something in his home or fixing something on their car or, uh, you know, fixing a piece of equipment in the gym. I think it's something that you have to have a good dexterity and a good feel for your hands and a, a way that you just know how to fix things with your hands. And when you do stuff like I, I, it would be, I guess, the equivalent of the way uh, a panel beater will put on a uh, would weld a piece of steel and then grind it down and then sand it and make it nice. And then he rubs it over again and again with his hand till it's as smooth as he wants it. Or for that matter, a, a cue builder who's making a cue and just takes off layer after layer to get the shape that he wants to get. I think that kind of workmanship is what makes a good hand wrapper. I'm, I'd, I'd be surprised if I came across a hand wrapper who didn't have those kind of attributes outside of, of wrapping hands. I'd be really surprised because for me, that's the way I am. Like I'm very, I like, I don't break things. I can fix things. If things have to be fixed, I can take it. If things have to be done with my hands or have to adjust things or tighten things or improvise on things, I think I can do that. So uh, I think most hand wrappers would be that way. Well, there you go. For all aspiring hand wrapping listeners around the world, you've heard it from one of the very, very best there, Ross Amber. Ross, thanks so much for coming on. Well, it's that time of the week again, dance partners. On the face of it, it is quite simple, but let's see if that continues to be the case. We speak to a fighter who's had 15 or more professional fights in their career. They then get 30 seconds to name as many of their opponents as they can in that time. As the weeks go on, we'll formulate a leaderboard in true Top Gear fashion and a winner will receive a donation to give to a charity of their choice. Now, who could we get on this week? That was the question. We wanted a great fighter a former world champion, a great pundit who speaks passionately about the sport he loves and someone who just wanted to be left alone and has barely been seen since he hung up the gloves. It's finally a bit of publicity for the bomber, Tony Bellew. Tony, welcome. How are you, mate? I'm fine, boys. Uh, I'm still trying to hide and still trying to say stay unseen, but you it's calling me and messaging me, so uh, I suppose I'm here to be heard this time and not so much seen. I just want to have a quick chat with you also, Tony, about last week's fight announcement. Chris Eubank Jr., Connor Ben. What was your reaction to when you heard this was over the line? And, and who would you say you favour heading into that fight right now? Uh, I've obviously known about little things in the background for quite a while now. But, uh, listen, he's my friend, uh, Connor Ben, and, and I've got 
I, an awful lot of respect for, for Chris Eubank Jr. Uh, so, you know, I, I'm going to obviously stick with Conor Ben, but it's a really hard fight. It, you know, it's, it's a fight where anything can happen. Uh, it'll be it'll be interesting to watch, mate. It really will be. It's one I can't wait to see anyway. And the big one, Saturday night, another good friend of yours, Anthony Joshua. I just wonder, have you had, um, have you had much contact with AJ at all in the build-up to this rematch? I know he's locked himself away, hasn't he, really? He's locked himself down. He's been away. I spoke to him a number of times. Uh, he's in great shape and he's, he's in high spirits. He needs to stay in them high spirits, keep any kind of negativity well away from him. Uh, and I think he can go on and get the job done. I really do. I'm favouring him for the knockout this Saturday, mate. I really am. And you've said about he needs to make these adjustments, Tony. What must he do, do you believe, to, to get the knockout and win this fight? Is it naive for us to think he has to just rough Usyk up and steamroll a man who's difficult to be hit clean? Or is that just what he needs to do, is just put it on him? If it was so easy to just go in there and rough him up, he'd be, unbe- he'd be beat. And he wouldn't have been the undisputed cruiserweight champion of the world. Uh, it's a lot harder than it sounds. He's a box of tricks. He's an anomaly. He's so hard to figure out. Footwork is his greatest asset, and it's that footwork that makes him so hard to hit, that makes him so hard to pin down. But if anyone can do it in the heavyweight division, it's AJ right now because he's the one with the athletic ability and the speed and the power and the explosiveness who's able to get close to him and stay close to him. And that's what he's got to do at certain moments in this fight. He can't just steam in uh, consistently because he'll, he'll be miss, he'll miss an awful lot, and then you know he'll tire the more he misses. But if he's able to put educated pressure on him, Punching spots and in bunches, you know, he can get the job done, he really can. Go the Bobby early, you know, and uh, put the money in the bank, as we say in boxing. I think he gets to him uh, mid to late. And we know boxing is a very fickle sport, Tony, especially as far as the fans are concerned. If he does beat Usyk, Eddie says he deserves all the credit as him being a pound-for-pound star. Do you fully agree with Eddie on that? He's already a pound-for-pound star, mate. This guy's took boxing in our country to a level it's never been to before. Mm-hmm. This guy's been filling football arenas for fun, uh, outdoor massive mega stadiums for fun, the likes of Millennium Stadium, Wembley Stadium, uh, Tottenham Hotspurs football ground. He sells them out, mate, and it had never been seen or done before on our shores, uh, not on a regular basis anyway. We've had one man who I think is capable of doing such a thing, and that was Ricky Hatton, uh, but even he didn't go to outdoor stadiums very often. I think he went there once uh, with the, one of his last fights at the Manchester City ground. But outside of that, mate, this guy's been a record-breaking phenomenon when it comes to pull with crowds, marketability within the boxing world, and then ultimately what he's actually done in the boxing ring. He's achieved unified heavyweight champion status quicker than anyone before, anyone else before. And no one's done it as fast as AJ. No one's done anything remotely as quick as him winning Olympic gold in record time. You know, becoming unified heavyweight champion in record time, uh, knocking everybody out was the way he did. Uh, and then also coming back and becoming a two-time heavyweight champion of the world after suffering a crazy defeat to Andy Ruiz, he comes back and sets it right. Hopefully, he gets the same thing done again in the same scenario and in the same place as we all know. Absolutely. Completely agree. Can't wait to see AJ do the business this weekend. But as far as this business is concerned, Tony, you are our third contestant on Dance Partners. Darren Barker currently tops the leaderboard with 14. John Ryder sits in second spot with nine as things stand. You've had... 34 pro fights, unless producer Scott's stats are wrong. So there's a big selection for you to choose from. Just uh, wonder if you're a bit nervous ahead of this, mate. Mate, it's easy work. There's one thing that boxing, mate, you're not going to cast me out on this. Here we go then. Talking a good game. Let's see if that's the case. Let's start the clock in three, two, one. 
Alexander Usyk, David Hay, BJ Flores, Ilona Macabu, Mateus Masternek, Artos, Killer Coolis, Julio Cesar de Santos, Nathan Cleverley, Adonis Stevenson, Isaac Chilembe, Roberto Bolonti, Edison Miranda. Uh, Jay Brooks. Uh, what's his name? Oh, for fuck's sake. Uh, I've said that's a chill All right, well, Tony, how do you think you did there? Are you happy with that performance? Well, once we say we allow the double names that I've mentioned, I think we've got 20. Mm. Scott, have you got the official decision for us? The official <laughs> the official decision is in. Scorecards are in. Tony Bella, you scored 13. Oh, come on. Oh. Tony, you're in second place with 13. Darren Barker still remains top of the pops with 14. Once again... The South End and and the London Mafia down there has overdone the North End people. <laughs> you have to take out with any mate. <laughs> Sorry, Tone. So close, but no cigar, mate. You're in second. Thanks for coming on, mate. And I'll uh, I'll look forward to getting a slap from you. I think next time I see you. Yeah, don't worry, it is coming. I'll see you soon. So <laughs> bad. Catch up soon, mate. Cheers, mate. Well, as always, we're going to finish up and chat through some shouts by you, the fans, in answer to our question, what was the best thing to happen in boxing last week? Delighted to say, joining us this week, fresh from professional victory, number eight, is the Hurricane Campbell Hatton. I say fresh from victory, maybe not fresh back from Dublin. How's the head, Campbell? Just about getting there now, mate. It's been a struggle this weekend, I'll be honest, but probably not hurting as much as my bank account is. <laughs> it's expensive over there, mate, isn't it? Crazy, mate. I think we got around the four Jaegers and it came to 40 quid, so I just told them to fucking pour it back. <laughs> <laughs> who, have you, who are you out there with, Campbell? Just just your boys, just celebrating the win? Yeah, just a few of the lads near, near me. They all went to the fight as well, so celebrating in style. Good stuff. Well, Campbell, let's, uh, let's talk about just that then. What was the best thing to happen in boxing last week, in your opinion? I suppose you've actually got quite a bit to choose from. Topping it's got to be the... Uh, Ben Eubank announcement outside of AJ and Fury is probably the biggest fight you can get made as far as you know an event and the, and bringing in eyeballs and like the fans getting excited for it. So I'd have to go with that. And that actually leads us nicely into the first shout from Adam Porter, who says the best thing to happen in boxing last week was Chris Eubank's jacket. I'm not sure about that being the best thing. That was. Uh... An interesting piece of clothing, Campbell. Do you reckon you could uh, pull one of them off, mate, in a few years? Possibly a snide one, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what? I don't think I'm pulling that off, to be honest. I'd have a good goal, but I think I'd look a bit of a tip, personally. It was just uh, pockets on top of pockets on top of pockets, wasn't it, I think? Oh, he's prepared, isn't he? He's prepared. He could have done with <laughs> that in Dublin, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, I'm intrigued to know what was in them pockets, because it looked like he had stuff in there, to be fair. Mm. Yeah, Maybe. interesting. But yeah, I don't I don't think that's for me. I think you'd suit it more than me, Campbell. Certainly not you, Scott. I mean No, definitely I not. You're, I know you're prone to a jacket, but maybe not that type of style. No, I suppose, it's, uh, the, it was the colour, mate. Not my not my, yeah, not yeah. my colour. I'm sure, mate. I'm sure. Campbell, I suppose uh, you know, as someone yourself, you know very well since the day you turned professional, since the day you probably started as an amateur, everyone would have spoke about the pressures that come with being the son of Ricky Hatton. When you look at those two, I suppose it makes your pressures seem a bit limp, no? It does now, yeah. It's uh, like I say that the rivalry between the two dads is probably the best 
rivalry we've ever seen in, in British boxing. And now for them to carry it on, uh, I'm glad it's them, not me. But it's um, like, like it's gonna it's gonna be absolutely massive, and you could see by how quickly it sold out, how much people want to see it, and that like me included. So yeah, it's really exciting, and like what a what a win for whoever comes out on top, and you know to as a way to sort of finish the rivalry. So Craig says the best thing to happen in boxing last week was the Ring Magazine taking the belt off Fury as he keeps retiring. Yeah, well, what is going on? I mean, has he actually retired now, Tyson Fury? Do you think Campbell? Do you think it's all a bit of mind games? Do you think he's waiting to see who wins this Saturday? What's your what's your verdict on that? I think he's waiting to see what happens Saturday. And like, what a convenient time to retire just before, um, like the biggest fight that's that's already made in in the division. So, I think if. If AJ's to come out on top and that fight looks like it can be made, I don't see any way he's going to turn that down and think he'll, he'll, he'll just he'll use it as a, he'll say it's a comeback and as a bit of a selling point. So like, he's a clever guy and he's got everyone talking about him. And um, but I, I don't see any way that he's going to turn that down if that if if him and him and AJ can get made. Do you think? Uh, do you think he'll be a bit devo, Campbell? That he's lost that ring magazine belt. He's one of the nicest belts in boxing. One, I believe, your, your dad won as well in his career. Yeah, he, it must be, but like he knows what he's doing, doesn't he? And if he, if he was to come back and fight the winner, he's getting it back anyway. If, if if he was to win, so I think he's probably. I don't think any other fight interests him. I think that's probably what it is. I think um, if if he what if he is to fight again, it will only be against against the winner of that one. Jury six one six says the best thing to happen in boxing last week was the return of Tiafimo Lopez. Yeah, good to see T.O. back. Uh, I think, obviously, bouncing back from defeat. I think he, he put on social media, didn't he? The greatest story is a comeback story. Do you believe he can come back and, and reign once again, Campbell? Yeah, I think I, I think he can. He, he looked he looked really good at the weekend. I saw the, uh, I saw the knockout. And I think moving up to 140 will do him a lot of good. Probably having that little bit more energy and making the weight a little bit bit easier might bring uh, like bring a bit more out of him as well so Definitely. and there's some top fights there as well so yeah that another uh, another good point and for you Campbell you you you've done your part and you've had a few pints of Guinness uh, over in Dublin you want to be double figures that was the aim wasn't it what you said to me in Sheffield by the end of 2022 has Eddie spoke to you when you could be out next would you be eyeing a return on the venue bank undercard maybe not heard anything yet, but that'd be that that that'd be brilliant if I could get on that. I'd be well up for it. So I'm uh, straight back to it now. So uh, back training, and, and I'll be ready as soon as they can get me out. But yeah, that'd be a good one. Top man, nice one, Campbell. Campbell. Nice Speak one, soon, boys. Man. See you in a bit. Yeah, Well, thanks for listening, as always, to Flash Knockdown next week. When you join us, will Anthony Joshua be ruling the heavyweight roost once again? We cannot wait to find out. Until then, as always, please follow, like, subscribe and share the podcast and send in any questions, suggestions, shouts and even a bit of abuse. The best thing to happen in boxing last week to Flash Knockdown at Matram.com. That's Flash Knockdown at Matram.com and we'll be sure to bring them up 
on next week's show. Thanks to all our guests, as always, Russ Amber, Callum Smith, Tony Bellew, Campbell Hatton, and both Chris Eubank Jr. and Connor Ben for their time last week. I've been Jamie Ward, and I'll be back with producer Scott at Matchroom HQ next week. See you then.